Hey, welcome to Dialogues with D, with me, Udambi Sadube. This is a podcast where we'll be unpacking various topics every couple of weeks. Here we get to challenge, agitate, question, inform ourselves. It's just a safe space. Tune in, join us. Welcome everybody back to Dialogues with D. I hope everybody's well. And um, this month, we're going to be focusing on uh, a very intense topic, I think, but one that's actually quite important to me. Before I dive into the actual topic itself, um, I have been sharing on the socials that I wanted to come back this year with a bit of a facelift and um, just a little bit more structure. Um, I know that you guys have shared with me already some ideas and uh, yeah. I'm really excited to have this new structure. And February, we're going to be introducing it um, with our first guest. So basically how this is going to work in the next coming weeks is that every month we're going to have a overarching thematic focus or area um, that I unpack with a specific guest or guests throughout the month from various perspectives. Um, and uh, at, in, at the end of every month, we're going to be having a little bit more of a more lighthearted conversation about whatever topic I unpack that month. Uh, and basically, to start off this structure, um, I'm going to start off with the topic of Pan-Africanism. And today, I actually have a very special guest with me who's going to be joining me in this conversation. I just want to reiterate, as I always do at the beginning of all my podcasts, that, you know, we're not experts in these topics. We're coming here, you know, just sharing our opinions. And this is really just a safe space to do so. Um, so, you know, take what you take from the conversation and I'd love to engage with you on your opinions, your thoughts on anything that we discussed today. So, yeah, Fred, would you like to introduce yourself to the people? Um, hi, Dee. Uh, my name is Frederick Beckley. Um, I'm a it's graduate. I just um, graduated my master's in development planning. I'm currently working as a researcher at the Witt School of Governance. Um, I'm not a historian, but um, this topic um, for today was one which uh, I find quite interesting. Um, and I'm yet to unpack that with you as to why, as the viewers. And yeah, thanks for having me, Dee. Really appreciate it. This is a great thanks platform, for your time. by the way. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks for your time and openness as well. Um, you know, the reason why this particular topic was, for whatever reason, suddenly so important to me, because I'm also not a historian. Um, and to be honest, I don't deem myself as a person who's well learned in any of those kind of topics. And that can sometimes come across a little bit like, in, I, I can be very intimidated when I go into spaces like that. But recently I was partaking in a parliamentary program and we were the first group from the continent. And so I think because this parliamentary program was done by the German government, they wanted to really show us that they're making an effort to unpack topics such as Pan-Africanism and decolonization as the West as you have it naturally. And so suddenly this topic just became very, very important and very interesting to me. And so naturally it was the first thing I wanted to unpack as the year started. Um, so what is Pan-Africanism? And I really want to define it for anybody who's listening in and is wondering, okay, you know, where's this going and what does this actually mean? I mean, there's many definitions for it, but I think the one thing that resonates with me quite a bit when I think of Pan-Africanism -Afri is this collective aim or collective movement. Um, it's, it's often been a political and a cultural movement across the world. I mean, there's many people who, uh, from particularly the States, 
um, you know, there's many activists from that side and a lot in, on our own continent and, the, and our forefathers from, um, who founded the African Union as well are very well known for being pan-Africanists as well. But it's really around the concept of, you know, united we stand, but divided we fall. And that, that comes across everywhere when you, when you even just Google the word pan-Africanism to say we need to unify in order to uplift ourselves and sort of release ourselves from the shackles of colonization. And so, you know, this to me, and I hate to burst anybody's bubble who's listening, but for me, it's so idealistic. You know, when you look at the world currently, or you look at the current state of the continent, it's really hard to feel like we always are united. Often it feels like there's so many things working against us, um, you know, when we're just looking at colonization and the things that we've had to as the various countries on the continent fight against, just in our own individual territories, it becomes really difficult to say, oh, I see you as my neighboring country, and so we are unified in this, in this fight. Fred, what are your opinions about just the, the core concept of Pan-Africanism and, and that it aims to really unify for a much bigger sort of, it's a beautiful goal, but is it realistic? Yeah, I must say, um, it's it's not to discredit where it comes from and what um, objectives it has and where um, the, the founding fathers had originally um, intended it for it to go or the channel they had intended it to go. But for me, it's always like, I've always understood it as an evolving term. I don't know if I'm correct mm-hmm. in assuming that, but it, it doesn't feel like, it feels utopian in the sense that it's, it's mm-hmm. it's not necessarily attainable because looking at our current situation cases in the past decade of xenophobia, for instance, how are we uniting when we're attacking our own neighboring countries? Um, how are we also, I think I also looked at it from in terms of having Ubuntu towards one another. I felt like pan-Africanism mm-hmm. to some extent and the whole unifying idea or ideology should link to the concept of Ubuntu. And if we have the current proceedings and political dilemmas in our and cultural dilemmas in our own country. How do we then, how is that goal even attainable? What are the building blocks to it to begin with? You know, when you consider the current climate with all the socio-technical changes um, and all this um, Western culture that we've adopted in that sense, is that how do we then, I think maybe it starts with a point of identity of who is, as much as we say pan-Africanism is for, black people which is my understanding yeah. of it but then how do we then work with pan-africanism and then work with the rainbow nation at the same time yeah that's actually a very interesting point and also those who did come to the continent because of colonialism exactly. are now identified as african and yes some would say they have every right having you know considering that they've been on the continent for for decades Mm -hmm. you know um it becomes really complicated my one thing that i always struggle with is do we even have the tools to be pan-africanist i remember in high school you know doing subjects such as history and feeling like there was nothing not a trace of that kind of history Mm -hmm. that we were taught about so from a young age you're not equipped with the knowledge to even know that there's this movement i think i mean a movement is one thing and people buying into the movement is another, but I feel like you need to have the information and the tools to be able to say, Oh, okay, this is, this is what's going on in the country. This is the history of the continent, you know, outside of my country. This is what other people are doing in other parts of the world, not just the continent. I mean, if you look at the movements such as black lives matter, which, you know, is mainly, uh, you know, 
originates from America, but it's it's I in my opinion I associate it a lot with America. I don't I don't see it as necessarily um, uh, a, a global movement. Just when you look at the attachment to the violence um, uh, of police, but if you look at that movement in itself, there's a lot of you know Pan Africanist elements in that as well. Mm, um, but I feel like I feel like it starts and ends somewhere as well. These movements are good for you know they're symbolic. They get people on the ground. Um, but then what people get stuck because we are also living in different contexts economically, politically. So do we even have the tools? Where do we start? Um, if, you know, if we're looking at a different version of, um, of, of Pan-Africanism, because you did allude to maybe it needs to evolve. Um, yes. how, do we, how do we start? Um, how do we start? If it were a subjective opinion and outside of all that I know, it would say it has to start with the, the individual because you as the individual have to adopt the whole ideology and believe that this is something you're going to go with, right? And from mm -hmm. there, you then strategize on how or what will help you attain that goal. But with the whole concept of Pan-Africanism, I feel like if we continue to attach it to the idea that we as black people need to unite, need to um, foster our own development, that's okay. I'm not against that. But at the end of the day, mm. what are we using or what mechanisms, what channels through the internet or AI are we using to actually equip ourselves to become or to to reach this unified idea of Pan-Africanism? I'm not sure if I'm on the right track to answer that question, but it's also, it would be ignorant of me to say, I don't know what tools we have available because there's these various ideas on how we can um, reinvent, so to speak, or re, I don't say reinvent, but allow the concept to transition through time, so to speak, in the sense that mm. we can't necessarily still stick to the fact that it's, as much as it is for black people, it is about black people, but at the end of the day, we need to unify who we are as the human race in essence, which is also in a, a very mm -hmm. utopian idea because we'll always have conflicting ideas and conflicting um, objectives and dreams, you know? So to, in all honesty, it all stems from the individual and whether are we read, are you as a person really adopting this concept of um, Pan-Africanism in your um, lifestyle or how you approach your engagements or how you have an impact on the world is it towards attaining this goal so that we can pick up these building blocks along the way because sometimes we need mm. to go through things in order to understand what actually got us there or what could get us there so that it's a trial and error thing because i think the only reason i then said um it's um a term that the only reason i said it's a term that uh needs to transition through time is that um, mm. looking at, let's say, for instance, philanthropy. Look at philanthropy five decades ago. Philanthropy was always about um, yeah. the United States giving to Africa or the Europeans giving to Africa, donating in terms of finances mm. and grants, etc. But when you look at the past decade, philanthropy has seen its way towards becoming impactful philanthropy rather than just funding, where we just put in finances and then let it go. And then that's it. It needs mm. to find its own way to stand on its feet. Right now, uh, most African philanthropists are helping Africa. So you find people, more prominent mm. people like Danwate, for instance, who are actually um, funding systems in Africa through support by providing the capacity more than providing the funds. Yes, the funds are always needed because we're an impoverished country. But at the end of the day, mm. we need 
um, the support from within. And that for me is the actual pan-Africanism is that the people who, ha- mm-hmm. who have the access and resources, because essentially we've been deprived. And that's why the whole concept of pan-Africanism arose to begin with. Yeah. So we need to then tackle all these points of deprivation, so to speak, in essence, but not in the same way that it has been done in the past years. It needs to transcend through time. I think that's what I, that's what, that's the idea I have. And that's my starting point with the whole concept. If it is to ever be realized. And we also need to give it the flexibility Mm. to adapt to a new time. I think flexibility Mm. and adaptability are proving to be some key characteristics considering the pandemic, for instance, because we don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. This this year, it's a pandemic. Next two years, it's a natural disaster. Who knows? So we need to then find that flexibility and adaptability within it because we also can't depend too much on structures because some of these structures are also failing us. Some of the political structures are really failing us. And we need to then maybe start from the ground and creating social structures where there's, instead of, for instance, the whole concept of a stockwell was someone's idea and it was a local thing, something that was on the ground. Mm. So now why can't we then come up with something else that allows us to empower ourselves, not necessarily financially, but also carrying that knowledge that this is what happened in the past because it also stems from history. So this is what happened in the past. And this is how we plan on going forward with various insights and multidisciplinary opinions. I think that's where, that's the starting point. Having a sit down or a lakota of some sort to actually sit down yeah. and say, okay, this was the purpose of this, but it, it has to evolve in some, in some way. It has to keep up with the times because it's not like a fixed scientific um, formula that produces water or something like that, for instance. It's a horrible mm. example, but mm. it's not a fixed formula. It it should be allowed to change and adopt new principles and objectives and channels and strategies. Yeah, I love that point. And I actually want to touch on the bit about structures <laughs> <laughs> and failing structures. And, um, you know, the organization of African unity, the AU, who I'm very familiar with as well, is at the core of uh, at least the, the African version of, you know, the Pan-Africanist movement. Um, and people nowadays have no idea what the relevance. And when I say people, I mean, people are not working in development. People are not politicians. People are not interested in any way in political topics. Don't know how that structure relates to them on an individual level at all. Um, and so maybe some would argue, maybe they're still stuck in that old version of, of Pan-Africanism. And I mean, when you look at some of the initial things that, they, you know, that motivated them to come together, it was really to cooperate together in order to fight imperialism and colonization. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the current state of Africa, and obviously this is not to undermine that this is a process, this is, can be a century long process. So we get where we want to be you know, what you speak of, of a more evolved version mm. of whatever Pan-Africanism should look like. That can take a long time. So it's not to say that things are not shifting and moving and, and changing that maybe we're not seeing on a surface level. Um, but when you look at structures such as these, what kind of role do they have to play? Because you did allude to maybe this needs to happen on an individual level, and that's where it's most impactful. Um, but how can structures, and I, and I do want to focus on, on the AU because the AU is really at the core of, uh, of this concept, um, but maybe you want to touch on other structures on the continent or on the world that you feel like, okay, that maybe could have a place or maybe it should look like this. 
what are your opinions on structures and like this, uh, like this, and how they could help in this movement? So basically, identifying the role of these various private or public structures that would then facilitate the whole realization exactly. of pan Africanism. Um, well, now that you mention the AU and the AFDB, um, oh sorry, um, African Development Bank, um, and organizations like the NEPAD as well. These are organizations that should be fostering mm. development in a particular direction. That's my understanding of them, either financially or providing capacity or support in any form or manner. And to my understanding, I just feel like some of these structures are failing us in the sense that they still facilitate the whole grant giving, whereas it's project-based or they facilitate, um, what do you call them? They facilitate um projects that are associated with particular organizations who have particular objectives so mm. at the end of the day there's really any organization that's really focusing on pan-africanism that's solely on pan-africans it's an element that can be part of the organization but it's never solely to actually achieve that goal and it's always then miscrewed because there's another player who's going to come in and then tell you i'm giving you money mm. to do this so uh how are you then going to channel it in such a way that you still maintain the, the narrow, not to say narrow part, lack of a better word, but this part of pan-Africanism? How do you channel someone else's objectives who has more resources and more access and you need that access in order to develop yourself, but then how do you channel them? I think the mm. biggest question for me is the channeling of these organizations to, or holding them accountable, or I don't, how do we develop these channels to hold them accountable? for what they are actually meant to do or actually even pose new objectives towards them. Because I think that's the biggest part that, um, not part, but that's that's where the biggest gap is. I remember at some point you you said you were creating this channel to, to sort of bridge this gap between what people learn and what actually happens on the ground, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. that gap, yeah. who fills that gap of allow, holding people, holding these structures and organizations accountable? Because we, it, it's said that they, they should be accountable, they, they hold audits, they do this and that, but all of these things are conscripted, they're done in private. These should all, I believe, should, be, mm. should all be public information. It shouldn't be conscripted to portray an idealistic image of the AU or of the African Development Bank and that, or they've created 20 jobs. How have they created these 20 jobs? Is it just by taking... Um, equipped people with skills and capacitating people who are already capacitated and can, can capacitate themselves or is it now unifying people mm. in, I don't know, taking people from Nigeria who haven't had the chance to understand that they have this opportunity to influence this certain network or channel or be able to voice out their opinion in such a way that it feeds into a policy or a strategy or a project locally. You you get what I'm saying? So it's my problem with these structures yeah. is, is the is how do we hold them accountable to the the things that influence them and their actual outputs and what they actually say they do because there's been some I don't want to say rumors but there's a lot said around for instance philanthropy <laughs> in that they could tell you that Microsoft is giving two billion annually for education and yet that's a lie they're probably only given two million you know for instance yeah. so there's things like that that keep happening and keep coming up and. To my knowledge, with the smoke, there's fire, or there was a fire, and someone put it out. So it's like, how do we mm. like how do we find those channels of communication? How do we find those channels? Because at the end of the day, it's supposed to be for the people on the ground. It shouldn't be a structure called the AU that probably doesn't even have its headquarters, for instance, in Africa, for example. But yet, it's 
supposed to be for Africans or most of the people who are part of these boardrooms and making all of these decisions haven't even experienced life on the ground and how it is for Africans. For a Zimbabwean to come to South Africa or from a South African to go to Nigeria, they don't understand the dynamics on the ground. Some of them, that's always my assumption because it's always made from an expert point of view sometimes. And yes, we attain all this knowledge through research, through investigation and empirical studies, but are we really in touch with what's going on on the ground considering all the things we're facing um, in this world mm-hmm. and the channels of participation and communication? Are they really there or only developed when needed? Because I don't think it should be a thing of if the yeah. AU decides to draft a policy on development or I don't know, on, or wants to approach the government with um, new objectives or a bigger plan or like for instance, what do you call them? The SDGs, yes. They want to align themselves with SDGs mm. and this is the direction they want to go. Are we, aren't we as Africans supposed to be consulted about that? Isn't there supposed to be some sort of, um, I don't want to say, you can't really interview everyone and, and interrogate everyone, but isn't there a unique channel where we can yeah. actually get to the core of what exactly people conceive or perceive as Pan-Africanism and then how can they play a role to foster what the outcome should be because if now we say what is their role based on the traditional understanding of pan-africanism then we're just repeating the same cycle it's either going to become a movement that's going to fade away and become a social um cultural yeah. uh, movement that's eventually going to fade away and nothing really happens almost like fees must fall we asked for fees to fall but fees went up instead so it's like how are we where are these channels to actually enable or empower them to know what their role is because they're coming in with an expert view that this is our role we're supposed to advise as opposed to because we know best whereas it needs to be more uh, a bottom-up approach so to speak what these structures should play i think they should play a role of creating channels from the bottom to the top i should say because it's usually always a top-down approach where they instill whatever expert um strategies or plans they have onto the local level and then people are always astonished about where this comes from why this why that whereas the core Mm. informative tool for them was a survey and in the survey as much as you know what the survey is about you never really get the lived experiences sometimes because the lived experience lived experiences and expectations and understandings of people are within their own circles when they are together socializing when they are brought together to socialize a a survey leaves someone for instance this would be the best this is one this would be one of the ideas i would say to actually create those channels of engagement where you have a platform where we can engage you have a topic you ask people questions back and forth so that different ideas come together and then it's not just one answer from one person it's one answer but from 17 people and then that creates a different spectrum now for how you can approach what the problem is or the direction of what you want to go towards and i think that is very important for them to play that to try and fill that gap be it using um, young intellectuals using ai using technology but we need to find these channels for social technical change essentially because that's what we need in yeah. order to get to any other point because that's where we are now we're in the era of technology and using technology to better our lives and advance our lives as much as there's a lot of um there's a lot of 
conspiracies and doubts and fears about our data being collected, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially, you they could have used that data as well to produce significant and on-the-ground um, responses. But yeah, um, I think that's it on that. I liked your point. I mean, you raised quite a few really, really, really crucial points. And I like the practicality of some of the things that you that you mentioned, because I think that's often what's missing. Or at least that's what causes the disconnect between a certain structure and people on the ground and people feeling like, oh, I'm not part of this movement. Or I'm not, there's nothing I can contribute to, you know, the bigger goal, which is let's unify for the ultimate bigger goal for the, for the continent. Um, but I also want to touch on decolonization. And... And I think that affects some of this and these structures, because often the work that is done in the context of philanthropy or development is coming from the West as some kind of, um, I don't know, compensation for colonization and all the damage that it may have done to a specific country or region. Um, so, so the agenda and, and, and the motive to do a lot of this kind of work is not necessarily always being driven from the African perspective or the African reality. Um, yes, to benefit, you know, we're not gonna take it away that this is not beneficial, um, but, you know, that's sometimes the, the challenge that I have with, you know, development work or philanthropy done in the name of, we are aiming to decolonize. And in decolonizing, we're helping you in your Pan-Africanist movement to be a little bit more unified, to be able to, to function a little bit more collectively to be able to recover, for lack of a better word, from the, the things of the past. And when you take these two concepts, <laughs> I struggle a little bit to, to say, okay, does this really, when we look at what we're fighting against, what, do, you know, all the powers that come with decolonization and, and the discourse that happens there, which we, we won't tap into too much, and you look at the concept around pan-Africanism, do the two can the two coexist at the same time? Can these two processes happen at the same time, or are they actually against each other mm. in some way? Um, I don't know. Mm. I'm just obviously also thinking out loud, but I always try and think: How do these two? I mean, I feel like even if we try to move a step forward, we're going to be pulled back because there's also this dependency that is created mm. from the development kind of work, which is done in the name of decolonizing. So we can't really get out. You know, we we are still sort of I don't know colonize in a way um and, and there's a whole lot of discourse around that as well you know the modern vision of colonization so what are your thoughts around that when we just look at these two these two concepts and do they have a place on this continent and how do we move forward as um, African people oof, the concept of decolonization is always a tricky one for me it's a very slippery slope in the sense that um it's hard to always conceptualize how you decolonize without destroying everything or disrupting everything that already exists, um, be it mm. in a social structure or economic structure. And I think it's more detrimental when you speak of an economic structure because how do you, because most of the things and most of our systems, either in society, in economics or politics, follow a westernized sort of structure or influence. And that's the hardest part because mm. we are a generation that was one deprived, or let me not say we are the generation. Previous generations were deprived of access to knowledge, access to land, access to a variety of resources and opportunities, right? So how do you then still try to unify Africans, which Africans could include some white people, depending on how you frame what an African is. 
Because like you said, some people have been here for plus minus 50 mm. years. Will you not consider them African? And where do you draw that line there in order for you to be able to understand that, oh, okay, with decolonization, it's not to unify black people, but then it's to remove the systems that have um, impoverished us or continue mm-hmm. to impoverish the black person. But in, I don't know, where I'm sitting right now, I think they kind of coexist. They can exist in a world together, but as much as Pan-Africanism would have to almost transition, like I'd said before, because it can't still stick to the fact that it's just trying to um, foster the black unity, black this. I think we need to start moving away from those concepts of color. We can't, not to neglect the deprivations of the past and colonial rules, no, but rather to move forward because it always feels like the more we keep identifying ourselves and putting these labels to movements, putting these labels to um, things that are actually really affecting our society and things that have impoverished um, our fathers and our forefathers. Um, We continue to foster them to exist, I believe, because we create this channel of remembrance of, oh, okay, Mm. we're black because there is white, for instance. And that's where, for me, the Mm. I can't use the word, but the mind what what kind of comes in where I can't really, Mm. I've never thought of how they exist together, but I do believe that Pan-Africanism would genuinely have to transition, to transform itself in order to include a variety of aspects that foster as well decolonization. Because I think that work well together if Africans understood Mm. that with Pan-Africanism, we're trying to empower you so you can get access to this, this, and this. With decolonization, we're trying to make sure that the system benefits our kids in future. Because that's how I see it. With decolonization, it's a matter of we need to understand that this system that we're currently living in has impoverished us and it continues to. And we need to be, reach the reality and the realization that this is our reality. And it's not the easiest thing to just be like, oh, okay, so we, we have the mm-hmm. free market, for instance, and we'll let the market do its thing and then we'll see demand, supply. That's it. If you dismantle that, what do you have? That's the question. I don't want to say mm. nothing, but I don't know what we have if we don't have that. Because you don't know how stable whatever comes next will be, how sustainable it would be, will it be able to. Because, for instance, um, activists like Marcus Garvey in the, I think, the 20th or 21st century, I'm not sure. But Marcus Garvey wanted an economy for Africa. He was pushing for black commerce, black unity. He wanted to get slaves from America, but he failed. And I think his primary failure was that um, he didn't have the resources at the time. The resources went there and, and, and the people who had the resources understood mm. what it meant for him to succeed. And I think even people like Gaddafi started mentioning that South Africa, your know, Africans should have their own currency. All those people end up disappearing. <laughs> so for me, it's like, how do they both exist without mm. it resulting in people dying? How does it occur without us having to protest the streets and having to die or get hurt? How does it happen without everything turning, I don't want to use the S word, but every, I don't know how you are with vulgar on your channel. And stuff. <laughs> but how do we avoid, how do we take away this in order to replace it with something that will work or we think will work because you have to try in order for it to work. And we don't really have we have these examples, funny enough, across the mm. world. Um, it's just that I don't have any right now 
I can't think of any right now, but for instance, the concept of colonization itself is a concept that would support decolonization, not to say we should follow the vicious means in which it was done or undertaken, but the, the concept of empowering from a young age, the process of in creating the opportunity at a young age, the process of creating awareness at a young age to all of these young ones, rather than letting the market do its thing, letting social media do its thing. Now we're talking about manifesting. What are you manifesting when you haven't put in the work? Are you going to sit on your bed and say, I need a job, start praying and having candles? Mm. Not to disregard prayer. I'm not saying that, but at the end of the day, you need to put in the effort. So if all of these things aren't done at a primary stage before whatever needs to happen happens, how do we get to that platform where these terms coexist? It's almost, uh, I don't want to say impossible, but it sounds impossible the more yeah. I speak about it. That is even decolonization possible? Is it? If we think about it. Yeah, million dollar question. You've perfectly, I, I literally have nothing else to say on the topic, actually. I think um, mm. to, to, to wrap it up at this point is important because there's a lot of questions which I feel people on an individual level need to also reflect on as well. Um, I think just to highlight some of the points that you mentioned throughout, I mean, what came through quite strongly from, 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 from your inputs was really, you know, maybe we need to evolve in our thinking about some of these concepts that were established 50, 60, 70 years ago and really allow for them to have a space in whatever mm. modern society looks like right now, whatever Black people look like right now, um, and, and, to, and, and, and also to make sure that there's a practicality in some of these things so that there's not this disconnection from this concept and myself um, and for structures to make a collective effort or rather a conscious effort to really try and reach people on the ground in ways that are um, accessible in ways that are relevant to them um, I mean and also you ask a lot of questions uh, and and for anyone who's listening now you can listen back and I think it's important to reflect on those questions but I think this is a perfect point to wrap the conversation up and I'd like to thank you Fred these um, perspectives were really really interesting I made a lot of notes, a lot I'm actually also going to reflect on. Because I think sometimes you listen to to these things and you ask yourself, mm, at least this is how I am. Yes. Yourself, what am I actually doing? Mm. Yeah, we did our bit today, which was to really start have this conversation and hopefully trigger other people to have other conversations. At least that's the what I always hope happens after these 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 dialogues. So Fred, thanks for coming on. Um, I really, really appreciated your insights and I'm pretty certain that we're going to get some interesting perspectives as well and feedback from people. So thank you for your time and you're welcome yeah, to come on. Thank you very much for the opportunity. To anything else. I'm hoping this is the first of many podcasts to actually be part of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you hope we'll it will be a fixture. We'll <laughs> it's no pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fred. <laughs> okay.